Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Taking Control of Your Diabetes podcast. And today I am very excited to have a good friend and colleague, Dr. Bob Cabay, who is Chief Scientific and Medical Officer of the American Diabetes Association. And very importantly, um, he's a down-to-earth, uh, very good guy, has lots of clinical experience, ran the Jocelyn Clinic in Boston for many years after he spent 15 years at the in Pennsylvania at the university there. So, and today our topic is going to be the American Diabetes Association standards of care for people with diabetes. And this is extremely important. This is um, uh, an area where we really urge most healthcare professionals that deal with people with diabetes in their clinics or whatever uh, area they see them to stay up to date. So, I'm going to let Dr. Gabay, and I'm going to call him Bob from this point, and Bob, please call me Steve. Why don't we discuss what is the ADA standards of care? Yeah, great. Well, Steve, first of all, thanks for having me here, and I'm looking forward to this conversation. So the, the standards of care are this um, sort of 200-page document that covers all aspects of diabetes, and they're basically the, the global medical guidelines for the management of diabetes, type one, type two, gestational, you know, the soup to nuts, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I, one thing I could say as a healthcare professional myself, that they have really um, changed quite dramatically in the last five years. And I thought what we could focus in a little bit on, uh, you know, between those hundreds of pages of documents is maybe talk about the uh, the therapeutic strategies that the American Diabetes Association does promote when speaking to healthcare professionals who see patients, and we'll focus in on type 2 diabetes, and we can also talk a little about type 1 later, but can you talk about the treatment algorithm that I'm referring to? Yes. Uh, so there, there, there are some um, uh, nice illustrated pictures that capture sort of the way healthcare providers like to think. And that's, uh, you know, if this, then do that. And if, if not this, then do that. And it allows people to sort of walk through different uh, uh, algorithms of, of how to manage people with diabetes. And, and the big change that's happened over the last few years has been in part uh, based on, um, you know, I guess somewhat new evidence uh, over the last of that time period of the the benefits of uh, certain medications to lower cardiovascular or kidney risk um, regardless uh, you know maybe not even because they lower blood glucose which is what we're usually you know targeting uh, for the management of diabetes but through other ways and so um, as we'll talk a little bit more about the algorithm that that's really what's dictating um, the choice of medications is what other uh, disease states uh, does the individual have along with diabetes or what other needs they have beyond just their diabetes goal of, of lowering blood glucose levels. Yeah, and I think what you're saying is that it, not everything is going to be centered around glucose control. Um, and in the olden days, which wasn't that long ago, um, the algorithm, the treatment algorithm was pretty uh, straightforward, but it wasn't that instructive. You start off with lifestyle, of course, and metformin, which is a very common generic medication that works well, and it still remains the first drug of choice around the world. And then the second choice 
just said anything else we have on our whole armamentarium. Uh, and then came along um, the cardiovascular outcome trial. That was a mandated uh, requirement for any pharmaceutical company to get approval for a type 2 medication. Um, maybe uh, you could explain what the CVOT uh, is and, and how what data came from that that led to some of the changes in the algorithm. Yeah, it was it was really a game changer, and uh, you know, as you'll recall, uh, they were so this was mandated, as you said, by the FDA to do uh, safety studies, cardiovascular safety studies for any new diabetes uh, type two diabetes medication, and so in one of the studies where they were looking at safety, they actually found not only was it safe. Uh, in terms of cardiovasculars, but it lowered cardiovascular risk. And I remember, as, as you probably do, being at the ADA scientific sessions in one of these big halls. And, you know, there were, there were literally gasps in the audience as you saw, oh, not only was it safe, but it was actually better to be on these drugs. Uh, and that was first with a, with a GLP-1 uh, medication. And then other studies of, you know, corroborated that and shown the same kind of thing with a second class of drugs. Um, these are not great names, but SGLT2. Inhibitors and GLP-1 receptor agonists. So I think our our audience knows them probably by the TV commercials, but, you know, Trulicity and Ozembic are the GLP-1s and Jardiance and Farziga. And I think, you know, even from uh, the cardiovascular safety studies came not only um, reductions in congestive heart failure, in addition to heart attacks and strokes, but now we know that the SGLT2 inhibitors um, can help reduce the progression of chronic kidney disease. So one thing the ADA has done, which is awesome, and you can comment, is that when you when you get evaluated as a person with diabetes by a healthcare professional, one of the first questions they should ask or determine from your medical history is, you know, do you have what we call ASCVD, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, uh, his, or a history of congestive heart failure or chronic kidney disease? That's the very first question. And that dictates what medications you as a person with type 2 diabetes should be on. And then we can also talk a little bit about our type 1s candidates for some of these cardiovascular and renal protective drugs as well. Absolutely correct, Steve. And so really this has been a journey, uh, if, if you look over time, of individualizing treatment for people with diabetes. And uh, it, the first step is, yeah, do you have one of those three things? Uh, atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease, congestive heart failure, or chronic kidney disease. And if you have one of those, that already tells you what medication is going to be beneficial. Um, and, uh, yep. And, well, let me just say that um, the, one, the one thing that really is new, new, new is the fact that, that you, ADA recommends that doctors would prescribe one of these two protective drugs, you know, GLP-1s, SGLT-2s, irregardless of the A1C level. And that's kind of new because everything in the past was driven by <clears throat> is the A1C, which is the indicator of glucose control. Uh, but now there are other things that dictate these therapies. 
Correct. Uh, It was really the realization that uh, these medications are beneficial, whether people are, you know, not only regardless of what their blood glucose levels are, but also even if they're not on metformin, we used to say, well, you know, you got to start on metformin first. And then when metformin is no longer working and A1C rises, then you add that second agent. There's no need to wait. Um, these drugs work uh, incredibly well to lower cardiorenal risk and therefore start them right away. Yeah. And I think the big issue, Bob, that um, I think a lot of patients would say is, you know, they hear about these drugs from our website, from the ADA, and they, they have a hard time getting them. And the, the, the healthcare professional is not used to going from newly diagnosed or metformin directly to one of these other two classes. And I think, thank goodness, the nephrologists, the kidney doctors and the heart doctors are starting to use them more now. And that's a little bit against the grain of what, what we've been practicing for years. It's, it's new and it takes time for people to get used to it. Uh, and, you know, the, the issue around access to uh, affordable treatments for diabetes is a huge one, uh, something that the American Diabetes Association is uh, uh, working really hard, uh, a lot of work around insulin, but now we're also shifting to uh, more broadly beyond just affordable insulin. Uh, people need to have access to drugs that can, uh, literally these can save lives. Yeah, it's it's access is also one of the areas of concern that's in the treatment algorithm. And let's talk about um, the other two areas of concern, and maybe you can expand a little bit, hypoglycemia and weight gain. Again, this is looking at individualizing therapy. And so if you have one of those three disease states that we mentioned, yeah, that that sort of tells you what medicine you should be on. Um, But if not, um, and if the primary sort of most important thing, and this is where we really encourage uh, uh, healthcare professionals to uh, talk with patients and ask them what's important to them. Uh, And if they say, hey, weight is my number one thing, well, then using medications that will not increase weight, number one, but also decrease weight. And those are, again, these same GLP-1 and SGLT-2 drugs are the preferred treatment if, if weight's the issue. Um, the other category is around access. And this is where, you know, we, we debated this a lot because we don't want to encourage uh, sort of two levels of care. Uh, at the same time, we recognize that uh, affordability and access to medication is, you know, a challenge, not only in this country, but these these guidelines are looked at uh, across the globe. And so wanted to say, all right, if that is the primary concern, then uh, here are the uh, treatments that are essentially generic and far more affordable. And we give choices uh, in that regard. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, and I I do believe that even using uh, some generic medications or going through uh, patient assistance programs to get the more newer ones are important. But I still I see patients all the time that are using the older generic medications, and they're doing extremely well. But the issue is if they can't afford a GLP one and they've had a heart attack or an SGLT two, and we're trying to reduce a heart and kidney disease, then it's something that they really need. 
So I think um, it's nice that a large organization like the American Diabetes Association is, you know, on the forefront of improving access. And I do think, to be fair, the pharmaceutical companies realize that's a problem too. And they're they're doing all they can, at least uh, outwardly, to develop programs to make it affordable. They, they are, and there are a number of programs available. And, you know, this is, we, we don't want to get too deep into this, but there are also these pharmacy benefit management companies, the, the middlemen and, uh, and women. And so they are, they are a tricky part of this ecosystem that is uh, probably not helpful uh, in yeah. terms of access and affordability. You're so politically correct. I can use a lot of superlatives, but we know we know what people do in the middle. They skim off the top. And, yeah, um, right. Yes, yes, I, exactly. Just reducing the areas where where money could be used towards uh, access versus you know individuals that are in the middle. Now, the other category um, is of concern is hypoglycemia, and it turns out that you know we have four classes of drugs that do not cause hypo, including metformin. Uh, but also uh, GLP-1s, SGLT-2s, and then a medication that some people know, pioglitazone. So these drugs do not cause hypoglycemia in and of themselves. So when you think about the GLP-1 and the SGLT-2 class, they're used for people who are at risk for heart disease and kidney disease. They're used for people with concerns for weight, and they're used for people with concerns of hypo. The only only category they don't quite fit in is the access one. Yeah. So... If we can improve that, we can improve a lot of diabetes. Um, Big Bob, time. What what talk about the weight loss and the GLP one receptor agonist? And and you're welcome to bring in the newest sort of member of the class that we pronounce in a very Italian way, Monjaro. Monjaro. Yeah. <laughs> so you know um, uh, the GLP one uh, drugs um, really have been quite effective in terms of weight loss and. You know, it it is dependent on the dose. So now some of them have had approved even higher doses than what were initially available because the higher the dose to a certain degree, the more weight loss. And so people can lose 10% of their body weight, which is not insignificant. When you think that the, you know, vast majority of people with type 2 have obesity and therefore need uh, to be able to manage that. And about a third of people with type 1 diabetes have obesity. So it's not just, you know, again, these are approved for people with type 2. But uh, um, um, I'm, I'm sure you, like myself, uh, use these uh, treatments for people with type 1 diabetes that are, you know, uh, that, that is beneficial. And, and then the, the new medicine, uh, and this was, uh, again, something, you know, just last month we had our big uh, scientific sessions that brought together, you know, researchers and clinicians from around the world. And one of the highlights was the release of data on this, on this new uh, drug, uh, Munjaro, uh, <laughs> that, uh, uh, and, you know, uh, so 15% weight loss. So people in the studies lost on average 49 pounds. That's a lot. Yeah. Uh, yep. You know, if, if your listeners think about 15% of their body weight and do the math, that's that's really that's getting close to what, you know, sometimes see with surgery. So it's yeah, uh, yeah it's it's, and, it's uh, exciting. 
it's as exciting. And the surmount studies that was just published in the New England Journal uh, for our listeners, that was using the same medication in people without type 2. They had pre-diabetes. They were normal, but they had um, they had obesity or weight problems. And they lost, on average, 50 pounds, over 50 pounds. And um, so it does – these medications, just like the GLP-1s, because it is partially a GLP-1, um, and they do lead to nausea, but to avoid that – it, you just do a slow titration. So, you know, I think these this class of GLP-1s uh, really have tremendous potential to help fight with the weight. And I just spoke with a patient just before I jumped on with you, lives in Hawaii. He lost 50 pounds on a GLP-1 receptor agonist over a year. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, I've, I've had you know, lots of uh, patients. It's it's also sort of funny for those of us that remember uh, the the early inhaled insulin and and how injections were such an issue, and we need to find solutions. and And that's still, I, I won't say that that's not an issue. Um, <laughs> but when I tell patients that you know, well, there's this medicine, and you could lose ten percent of your body weight. They're like, oh yeah, no, that sounds great. And I say, but but you have to inject it like once a week, and they're like, oh yeah, that's fine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Putting all that aside, we know that insulin works. Uh, we try to use it in the most efficacious way to re- reduce any weight gain, the long-acting basal's, uh, but it does cause weight gain, and you can get hypoglycemic on it. So where have the recommendations for uh, starting insulin? Uh, how have they changed and what are they currently in the 2022 guidelines? Well, now, because of these other treatments that we've just been talking about, um, it's a little further down the line. And um, really uh, starting a GLP-1 drug before starting insulin in most cases uh, uh, is really advised. Uh, unless people have, you know, really high blood glucose levels, a lot of symptoms, you know, related to it, because these drugs don't work quickly compared to insulin, where, you know, literally in a, in a day or two or three, you can get blood glucose levels under control. So it's, it's, it's really GLP-1 first and then insulin after uh, in most cases. Yeah, well said, Bob. And then the other thing is we do have uh, two... Uh, formulations of a fixed ratio combination of a basal insulin plus a GLP-1 receptor agonist. So in those all situations- All in one shot. Yeah, exactly. All, and they're underutilized. I mean, you know- Totally. Yeah. Yeah, they're totally underutilized. And uh, I have found that the combination uh, of the, these fixed ratio combinations, they work extremely well. And you, do, you get away with a lower dose of insulin- and you don't see the weight gain with insulin alone. So if some of you listeners um, are thinking about this, think about the fixed ratio combination. And there's two of them out there. Uh, one's called Zoltify. The other one's called Soliqua. Now, Bob, um, I thought uh, I would present a case to you. And um, you could discuss it. I know that. Do you still see patients? Now that I do. Big- I, I, I still do it at my old place at Jocelyn. So uh that was one of those things I didn't want to give up in taking this role here at the American Diabetes Association. Well, I think that's smart because you lose touch. Exactly. Uh, now, you've had so much experience. I think you would probably never lose touch, but it is nice to at least do your profession on a limited basis while you're dealing with all the crazy stuff you have to deal with running a large organization. <clears throat> okay, here's the case. 
It's a 67-year-old woman. She was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes 10 years ago. She does have problems with uh, weight problems and what we call central obesity. Maybe you can explain that when I get done. High blood pressure, abnormal cholesterol levels. Now, she's had two cardiac stents. And, uh, and she also has a very strong family history of heart disease. Uh, just for the listeners, the stent is like a little tube they put in the heart when your heart vessels block. So instead of having uh, open heart surgery, they put in a little, like a straw, <laughs> for lack of a better word, it, it allows the blood to flow through the blocked areas. So she does have atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease. And her A1C is 6.8. And she's currently on maximum doses of metformin. So her glucose control is excellent. Uh, she is quite overweight, according to our standards. Um, and she does have chronic kidney disease with uh, what we call the glomerular filtration rate, the EGFR of 46. And her LDL cholesterol is 176, uh, and uh, which is way too high for someone with her background. Blood pressure is also elevated, 140 over 90, and she's not taking any anti-hypertensive medications. She just doesn't like taking medications. So as you're a provider, how would you approach someone like this uh, who's 67 and has these medical problems? Well, Steve, you're right. She has a number of issues going on. Uh, and, you know, part of it is, uh, it, you know, we're going to have to talk about the importance of treating some of these things. Uh, and and uh, she has multiple uh, uh, risk factors that are going to unfortunately increase that risk of, uh, of a heart attack. And she's been lucky to get uh, the straw put in, so to speak, to open up the blood flow, but uh, uh, she may not be uh, so lucky next time. And I don't, I don't have these conversations in a way to scare people into doing things, but you know, to just talk about, um, you know, just share some facts so that they understand uh, and understand what her reluctance is to take medication. Um, and and so that that might be the first place because, you know, as as you can appreciate, we're not going to get a lot of progress in lowering her risk without medication. Um, certainly uh, talking about lifestyle and, and the things that she can do to address that. But we know um, in, in several of these categories, if we can move where she is now to uh, a better goal, um, she'll lower her risk of having another heart attack and, and you know, save her life in essence. Yeah, you know, I, I like the way you think, Bob. And, you know, it's nice that you address the, the issue of her concerns because we know that um, a lot of folks that get type 2 diabetes later in life, they're, they're reluctant to take medications. I don't blame them. Plus, sure. you know, if you think about it, type, if you have type 2, you're typically on a lot of different medications. And no one likes to take a handful of medications. You know, the pharmacy, the, the co-pays, the, you know, refills. Sure. And, but you're right. Her, what is this, what's the biggest risk factor this person is heart disease. And so, you know, she, one thing that, is unique to this case that I think that we talked about earlier. Her A1C is good. And if you talk yes. to a doctor who's not up on the standards of care, they might say, Oh, you don't, you don't Glucose need to is good. Yep. See you. See you in six months. Well, they, I'm hoping that they'll focus in on the blood pressure and, yes, and right. LDL. Of course. of course. Yes. Which right. are, which are really the basics. 
a part of the basics of, Absolutely. of reducing heart disease. Well, it, it's a it's a case that's a real case, and unfortunately, it's not an uncommon case. And um, I think that people with diabetes should have a good idea about these standards of care and the treatment algorithm when they speak to their doctor. Now, are the ADA standards of care written in lay terms at all? Is there a place where people can go to read about them? You know, it's it's something we're working on of how to translate this information. Uh, so what we have done moving in that direction uh, is, you know, first of all, uh, not every healthcare provider is going to read 200 pages. Uh, and so we've, we've created a bridge version. We've also uh, uh, have a, a variety of sort of free continuing education sort of things. But again, those are those are targeting healthcare professionals. Um, and we're, uh, we have an app that you can download that has the information, but still not, not geared towards uh, the person with diabetes. And that's, that's where we need to go. What we have done in that realm for some of the recommendations is start developing infographics. And infographics are a great way, you know, that that idea of pictures worth a thousand words. Mm-hmm. You just look at it and it's sort of like, oh, I get it, you know. Eye exams yearly, you know, right? You know, no, no, you know. Um, so that that's something that we've started to do, and we hope to do more uh, over time. And then, you know, this program, Steve, is a great way to get the information out to uh, people with diabetes. So thank you for doing it. Oh, you're welcome. You're welcome. Now, you know, as we're getting towards the end, we have focused in on, uh, very focused in on the the treatment algorithm for people with type 2. It's the most common type of diabetes, and I think there's a lot of type 2 listeners. But tell us more about what's in the standards of care and and maybe talk a little bit about type 1 diabetes. Yeah, so there's a lot in it. Uh, Maybe I'll just throw out a couple of uh, 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 sort of new new kinds of things that uh, are in there. Um, One that, that sort of has not gotten a lot of attention um, uh, is is around pregnancy and diabetes. So, uh, you know, uh, women uh, uh, during pregnancy uh, uh, having diabetes can really be a problem in terms of their health and their baby's health. But what's what's clear is that um, women are often uh, uh, undiagnosed having diabetes, so they may have pre-existing diabetes um, and not know it become pregnant and you know a lot of the sort of baby's organ development happens in the first 10 weeks where they may not even know they're pregnant so the recommendations are to really screen women that are uh, thinking about conceiving um, for pre-existing diabetes so that that's that's one um, I would say also in terms of um, uh, type 1 diabetes, it uh, is again around individualizing care. And the way we framed it uh, for the different, you know, there are different uh, insulin regimens that people can be on. Uh, um, and and so we created a nice little table that says, um, based on what's important to you. And so again, it's, you know, sort of cost and access being one of them risk of hypoglycemia uh, uh, being another, and flexibility of lifestyle being another, you can now look at which kind of insulin regimen might be best for you, uh, depending on which of those three are you know, the best. 
most important to you. And um, when it comes to the various insulin pumps that are out there, how do you judge those? Uh, you know, sensor augmented pumps, and you know, there, there are all sorts of things out there. Um, how do you choose which one based on, again, the same types of criteria? Wow. How many healthcare professionals went into putting together this 400 page, you know, standards of care? So it it's to be hundreds. Yeah. Well, you know, it's uh, first of all, it's the entire scientific community that does the research that provides the evidence that leads to this work. And, you know, papers you've written, Steve, or, you know, helped help to drive a lot of what's happened over the years. Um, there, there is a, a, a professional practice committee that's this incredible group of individuals that are interprofessional, meaning it's not all endocrinologists. It's endocrinologists, pediatric endocrinologists, because there's a, mm -hmm. a whole section on, on children and adolescents. Um, there are kidney specialists. There's uh, heart specialists. There are diabetes educators, dietitians, um, pharmacists. Uh, all getting together, reviewing the evidence from the year before, uh, and then going through this process of here's what's new. We think these changes should be made based on that. And then there's discussion, debate, and honestly, sometimes arguments until we come to consensus to say, yeah, no, this is this is really what the evidence says. And then each year, uh, a new edition is put out. And because diabetes changes so rapidly, we've had to um, start this thing called the living standards where we don't have to wait a whole year to add new information. We can add it a, a bit more on the fly because years a long time to wait in the world of diabetes. So much yeah, is changing. Well, gosh, I, I really appreciate that last part, Bob, because it gives people an idea of what goes into these standards of care. And uh, all I remember from years past that they would come out every five years <laughs> And now they're coming out more frequently and it's because we have a lot more good information. And I don't think there's ever been a better time to have diabetes. Uh, you know, you have to find a good healthcare professional, get smart yourself, and then hopefully have access. Um, uh, you know, even, even just type one diabetes is getting quite advanced and complicated. So to have a document like this, I, my hat's off to uh, you and the American Diabetes Association. So, um, with that, I think we're getting to the end. Is there any closing comments you'd like to make as chief scientific and medical officer of the American Diabetes Association? It's been our pleasure to to collaborate this podcast with you guys. Uh, thanks so much, Steve, uh, for the opportunity to share this information. And and I guess I would, uh, you know, uh, first of all, tip my hat to all the people living with diabetes and the struggles that they have uh, day, in, day in and day out. And, you know, we at the American Diabetes Association appreciate that and want to make diabetes less burdensome for you in every way that we can. And for the health professionals that work so hard, and particularly during the pandemic, where, uh, you know, for, for everybody has been tough and uh, particularly uh, those on the front lines, uh, um, Thank you for everything you do and uh, take care of yourselves uh, because uh, we, are, we are all, you know, there's <laughs> burnout is a real thing uh, for people with diabetes and uh, for the uh, professionals that care for them. And so let's, let's take care of ourselves uh, in the midst of all this. 
Well, Bob, I'll finish with a comment I made at the very beginning. You are a good guy, and the American Diabetes Association is lucky to have you as as one of their top leadership people. So you take care, and for everybody out there, keep an eye on both the ADA site and the Taking Control of Your Diabetes website. Thanks, Bob. Thanks so much. Take care.